a Podcast One production. I'm sitting in a Cessna 152 aircraft on the tarmac at McClellan Palomar Airport in California. And I've just been given clearance by the tower for takeoff. It's a scary feeling because if I get this wrong and crash, that's it. So I'm actually a bit scared. Even though I know this is just a game. But I have to say, There's never been another game quite like it. It's a game that might just change the way we see the world. Today, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work and play. We're exploring the secret history of video games, an untold story with one foot in the world of entertainment and another foot in the arts of war. In the conclusion of this two-part episode, we'll look at how war and play came together at the end of the last century, transforming the military, the entertainment industry, and space exploration. We're climbing to new heights and reaching escape velocity on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. In the middle of August in 2020, I had a bit of downtime, and fortunately, That was the very same week Microsoft released Flight Simulator 2020. Now, long before Microsoft was known for Office or even Windows, it was known for its flight simulator all the way back in November 1982. The very first version came out with graphics that even by the low standards of the day seemed blocky and unpolished. But you need to look beyond the graphics because inside the computer, something else was happening something far more important. The computer was actually running a very complex calculation, taking in all of the settings of the aircraft's controls, things like throttle and trim, the ailerons, the flaps, the rudder, wind speed, using all of that to simulate how the aircraft behaved in real time. Now, a computer in 1982, it's at least a thousand times slower than your average computer today. So doing all of that calculating taxed the computer to its limits and trying to do that while drawing pretty pictures to the screen, that's too much. Instead, the simulator opted for behavioral fidelity, getting the actions of the aircraft right over visual fidelity. Now that's the right call. And from the beginning, Microsoft's flight simulator had a lot of fans. As computers grew faster, Microsoft released new versions of the game, each with more accurate behavioral simulation and each with better visual fidelity. Now, for a long time, Flight Simulator was still really blocky, but then other PC video games at the same time, they didn't look that much better. And the game was actually trying to display a three-dimensional world to players. And that's something that takes a lot of computer power. 
Microsoft put out version 10 of its flight simulator back in 2006, and that seemed to be the end of it. But what an end, because it used the full power of the computer to display aircraft and their controls and the landscape in pretty rich detail. At the time, it was considered a landmark, a great final chapter. Until in late 2019, Microsoft began to hint about a new generation of its flight simulator. And a few still images from the in-progress version of the game, they made their way online and people went a bit nuts because these images, they looked almost real. You really do have to look twice. And that's because Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020 isn't just about simulating an aircraft in flight. It's about simulating the whole world. And if that sounds like a tall order, well, consider Again, your computer is at least a thousand times faster than that computer back in 1982. And if you have the right graphics card in your computer, it can draw three-dimensional images a million times faster or a million times more detailed. So the idea of behavioral fidelity, it kind of merged with this idea of visual fidelity. To get things working right means getting them looking right, and getting them looking right means getting them working right. It's really two sides of the same coin. And that means when my nephew Andy, you remember we met him in the last episode, when Andy got behind the controls of a simulated Cessna 152, which was the very same aircraft in which he'd learned to fly for real, he had this reaction. So when I got Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020 and I put myself in the seat of the Cessna in the game at Palomar Airport, I looked around and it was the exact same. There was... All the buttons and switches were there. Um, There were a few tiny differences that vary from the trim you have on the aircraft. But other than that, every uh, button and switch in the aircraft operated the exact same. Um, I just remember the startup sequence in my head. Whenever all the switches pressed it, boom, I was in the air flying around. I was able to fly over my house and uh, fly over, you know, the Pacific Ocean. And the feeling of the aircraft as well, not just the operation of it, but the feeling of how the aircraft handled, how it would get bucked around by the winds because it's so light was also a really key factor in selling me the fact that, yes, I'm actually flying this plane. I think a lot of people can get a basic understanding of how to operate those aircraft and get a feel of how they would handle from simulators, especially, you know, commercially available ones and consumer level ones, such as Microsoft Flight Simulator. Uh, The only issue I have with it is that when you're flying in Microsoft Flight Simulator, you don't get the actual feeling of flight. You don't feel the wind bucking you around in your seat. You don't feel the aircraft toss and turn as you roll. So how did we get to this point where simulators are now so realistic that in many ways they're indistinguishable from the real thing? For that, we have to return to Dr. Mike Zaida. You met Mike in our last episode. He's really a pivotal person in the history of network simulation and more significantly in the crossover between military simulations and entertainment. In the second half of the 1990s, the U.S. military has been sold on the value of simulation, but it's expensive. These simulators are custom equipment, and while they're cheaper than a real plane, they're still really quite pricey, and Mike thought he had a solution for that. It it was a big deal, and it it basically switched everything around. That that plus uh, the report I chaired for the National Research Council in 1996 that put out the study modeling and simulation linking entertainment and and defense, those two things changed the entire department of defense to using game engine technology and networking of those 
games to create the next simulation systems of the future. Mike was recommending that the U.S. military start using all of the kit that was being created to help gamers play titles like Microsoft Flight Simulator and Quake and Tomb Raider. Before this study in 1996, the Department of Defense, again, was spending massive amounts of money building simulation systems, designing their own graphics hardware, not using workstations that you could buy off the market. And there was, by 1996, there was this big move towards PC graphics cards and game engines. And this study came out from the Computer Science and Telecommunications Board, that, and I chaired that study, and it basically said, look, Department of Defense, you got to stop spending this much money on simulation because you need a lot more of it than you can buy with that amount of money. And you can just use PCs with graphics cards and game engines, and you can get there cheaper, better, faster than you can with going to defense contractors who are sort of uh, building the big ones for them. This is an important point in military history and the history of entertainment. Because at this point, these two very separate things, they begin to fuse into something that's got features of both. And the first real taste of that was when the U.S. Defense Department decided that they needed to be able to train people not to fly the latest jet or launch the latest missile, but to write a new generation of simulations that drew from everything that had been learned from video gaming. Though it took a few years for the Army to come around to seeing things Mike's way. That study came out in 97. It was very interesting because it was controversial. I think the funding came from the uh, Defense Modeling and Simulation Office. And they were directed by the Director of Defense Research and Engineering to fund the National Research Council to do this study. I got chosen as the chair of this study. And then when the study came out in 97, the, the director of DIMSO said, hey, well, I, we hated that study. And we threw all the copies in the trash. And I was like, no, God, I was, I was upset. But by two years later, uh, Mike Andrews, who was the chief scientist of the U.S. Army, looked back at that study and said, Mike, we need your help. We want you to take that study and turn it into an operating plan and research agenda to found the USC Institute for Creative Technologies. And so I wrote that operating plan and research plan at the start of 1999, got it approved almost immediately. And at, uh, by fall of 1999, USC Institute for Creative Technologies is up and running. Now, this is where, very unexpectedly, I come into this story. You see, I was teaching at USC at the time, getting their interactive program off the ground at their film school. And I was briefed about this amazing new Institute for Creative Technology and invited to participate. I could immediately see why the military would be looking to games to create the next generation of simulators. Developing games isn't really my cup of tea, so I declined the offer. But it wasn't long before Mike's Institute had changed the public face of the Army forever. So America's Army, uh, in 1999, the U.S. Army didn't meet its recruiting goals. And the Assistant Secretary of Army for uh, Manpower and Reserve Affairs, Patrick Henry, was looking at it saying, we're not meeting our recruiting goals. We're not going to the right people with our message of recruiting. And his idea was, could we do this with games? Because games were what young people played. They didn't watch TV. They didn't necessarily go to a NASCAR race. 
the army was fully aware that the recruits they were looking for were at home playing video games. And if they wanted to recruit those kids, they were going to need to use a game to do it. And we got our first money in May of 2000 when we started the project. So I had to go from uh, not having a game studio to having a game studio inside of the Naval Postgraduate School. And uh, we did some spectacular things. But we built America's Army. It was, uh, it was the most successful recruiting tool ever built. America's Army gave a window into the experience of what it actually meant to be in the Army, not just shooting it up on a battlefield, but all of the training exercises that a recruit has to go through on their way to becoming a soldier. Good morning, soldier, and welcome to the M16 qualification range. Now get your ammunition from the table located to your front right. Soldier, here's your ammunition. Now move out and enter firing point number nine. And it turns out the U.S. Army found a lot more uses for that. But then the U.S. Army looked at it and said, you know what, that looks so beautiful. We could turn all of that content into training tools. Even in the America's Army game itself, we, we did a full model of the rifle range at Fort Benning in the game. And it wasn't built in support of, as a trainer. It was built as, here's an experience of what your training in the Army will look like. But what There was a sergeant at the rifle range who noticed that if they had someone who failed the rifle range, they took him off and they put him in the game room and had him complete the rifle range training in game form. And they put him back out on the rifle range and the next time he passed. It works. The training from the game works. So if using the game makes you a better soldier, if it helps you pass the test on the rifle range, is that a game? Or is it a simulator? Or is it both? When Mike Zaida proposed a marriage between the military and entertainment, this is what we got. This and a whole generation of games that ever more faithfully simulate the real world. In a moment, We'll look at how simulations have already started to grow beyond the confines of the computer and into the real world. Welcome back to the next billion seconds, where we're looking at how the tie-up between military simulation and the entertainment industry led to the current generation of massively multiplayer video games. Microsoft's Flight Simulator 2020 actually falls into that category. Not long after the game came out, my nephew invited me to join him in a flight over his home. I'd see his Cessna 152 and he'd see mine. We could even do some tricks. Well, if I knew how, I'm still learning to fly. I can't even land yet. But that doesn't mean I can't play. And Flight Simulator 2020 is a game that invites you to play because it is so richly detailed. Microsoft has used all of the data that it owns about the world, and that is a lot of data, to generate a realistic model of the world. Not just the terrain, not just the roads, the buildings, the foliage, the sea, the street lights. You can fly over Africa and see simulated elephants crossing the plains. It's really almost a bit nuts. It's like there's this whole other world inside the game, only it's not actually inside the game. The big step change with this version of Flight Simulator is that it expects everyone playing it to be connected to the internet at high speeds. 
that allows the game to talk to Microsoft's global network of servers and grab all of the data about the portion of the world that you're flying over as you fly over it and show you all of the terrains and the roads and the buildings and the foliage and the streetlights all in 3D, all in real time. It's another case where this line between simulation and visualization gets really muddy. Is this what we think it should be or is this what's actually going on? And the boundary between those two is defined by data. A simulation makes a guess about data. A visualization uses a reading from the real world. When a simulation is good enough, it's hard to tell the difference unless you look outside and you see that what's being simulated on your screen isn't what's actually happening out there. Microsoft Flight Simulator is making those readings. It's reading in air traffic control information, the real data in real time. So when you're flying around, air traffic control will warn you about air traffic to avoid because it will be there. Microsoft is using that air traffic control data to put flights into the simulation. So again, is that a simulation or a visualization? And in the biggest, the most unexpected leap forward, Microsoft also uses weather data gathered in real time from ground observations and puts it into the simulation. This new feature got a good workout almost immediately because Hurricane Laura, which was a very nasty Category 4 storm, it hit the Gulf Coast of the United States just a week after the game was released. And more than a few players, they went storm chasing. They took off in a simulated aircraft from a nearby airport and pointed in the right direction and flew into the heart of the storm. Now, that's a good test for a pilot because it won't be easy to control an aircraft in that kind of wind. But it also points to this crossover between simulation and visualization. People were acting as though the simulation is real enough. And with the trajectory Microsoft seems to be on, Flight Simulator will only gather more and more real-world data closer and closer to real time until it becomes, well, it becomes something we haven't seen before. A real-time simulation of the entire planet, one that you can fly over. But why stop there? There is a lot of junk out there in space. There is an enormous amount of space debris, and it's a big problem. That's Andreas Antoniades. He's the Australian director of Sabre Astronautics. Ever since, I would say, the first launch of a satellite into orbit, Sputnik in this case, there has been space debris, and it has accumulated since then, since the 50s. And um, at the moment, there are hundreds of thousands, if not more, pieces of space debris, ranging from tiny little paint flecks to entire rocket bodies or even, uh, you know, multi-ton spacecraft. And they float around in orbit, uncontrolled, and if they are above about 450 to 500 kilometers in orbit, they're basically up there for decades, if not forever. His company makes tools that help people track all of the space junk that's floating around in orbit above us. We have a pretty good idea where a lot of the space debris is in orbit. There are a number of ways we can actually track that using ground-based radar, ground-based telescopes, and in some cases, we actually can use images from spacecraft to image other spacecraft. And that gives us a pretty good idea where a lot of the bigger ones are, probably down to about one centimeter in size. 
But anything smaller is uh, very difficult to track, and that's probably where the most of them is. And when you know something's up there, something that's big enough to cause a problem if it hits something else, but it's too small to be seen, what do you do? You can simulate it. When predicting where an object is or will be, it's important to have a high-fidelity understanding of where that object is when you capture the information about that spacecraft. Now, the thing is that while you can use some pretty well-understood mathematics to propagate that orbit forward or backward in time, the further forward you go, the bigger your uncertainty. So it's absolutely critical that you observe that spacecraft as much as you can, because the more you update the position of that spacecraft with real information, the more you can reduce the uncertainty of that object and act on it. Here again, we see that fuzzy boundary between simulation, where you think the space junk might be, and observation, which tells you where that space junk actually is. And that's the key to what Sabre does. It's software-based mission control. Now, when we hear the words mission control, we immediately visualize a big room in Houston full of technicians all sitting in front of desks with lots of buttons and screens. All of that can be done in software these days. That's what Sabre does. It's got all of this real-world data gathered from observations, and for what it can't see, its software does the best it can to simulate. In mission control, mission operations, simulation goes hand-in-hand with what's happening in the real world. Because we're not getting enough data points at the moment of where spacecraft are going to be, knowing where something will be through simulation is absolutely critical. It is done with every mission. We've done it since the moon landings, even prior to that. We need to know where things will be and how to act accordingly at that point in time in the future. And there is latency involved in when we can get access to certain information, so we have to guess, which is the simulation part. Now, if that all sounds a little theoretical, It's actually very visual. It's very hands-on. Think of it as a version of Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020, but for space. It takes a very complex problem, all the maths, all the data points, all the results of simulations, uh, and it actually gives it a visual context. And uh, to a certain degree, having a a picture of a a blue marble on your screen with uh, with lots of dots floating about it might not seem all that... um, you know, important for context, but it is actually everything. Knowing where orbits are going to be visually, knowing what a spacecraft looks like, being able to break that spacecraft down into small pieces and and click on things interactively. And because it all looks like, well, it looks a lot like what you'd see if you were in orbit yourself, it's a lot easier to train someone to manage that satellite or avoid that bit of space junk. Generally speaking, When it comes to training a space operator, I think it's anywhere between three to six months to get them trained up. Especially as a mission operator or a mission director, you would need to understand uh, the context of basically every single one of those bespoke interfaces, you know, that make up the current mission operations center. We've had someone trained in as little as 40 minutes using our software purely because it brings everything together and gives it context, makes it all glue together you know if you click on something you can see exactly what it's doing Uh, you know you can push a button and 
QR command to, you know, to send to a spacecraft. You don't need to work across a dozen so interfaces just to make one thing happen. These are exactly the same sorts of problems that Mike Zaida set out to solve when he decided to blend military tech with entertainment. Turns out that works just as well for space. Turn it into something that people can touch and manipulate and play with. Turn it into something they can get a feel for and they'll learn really, really fast. Just like that rifle range in America's army. Put them through the simulation and put them to work. So we've completed our journey from ground level to Earth orbit, from the beginnings of simulation a century ago to the latest simulations that blend so much real-time data, it's no longer really possible to call them simulations. There's something else, something new. And where is all of this going? We're reading lots of data from the world around us, but the next frontier for data, according to Mike Zaida, is what we can read in from ourselves. We're going to see a lot more in sensors. So, in fact, I've been, I'm advisor to a new laboratory. It's called the Human Perception Laboratory. And its focus is going to be on biometric sensors like EEG, heart rate. And it's going to take all of that information in. It's on your watch. If you look at uh, what is the, the new Halo device from Amazon, and it's going to have all this information about what is the human state. Are you tired? Are you angry? Are you happy? Are you sad? Are you stressed? And that sensor stream is going to go out into the network and into the simulation such that your virtual human that is in the simulation will know something about you. And we're going to have emotional and physical models for our AI characters. Our AI characters will have a personality such that, you know, if, if we're playing against a pirate, and that pirate's goal is to mess you up, and he sees that you're getting angry, he's, he's going to push some more buttons on you and make you more angry. And that's the future. And that's going to be in the next decade or two. And it's going to be very exciting. And what it also, it, from simulation, means we can, you know, take soldiers and put them out into the simulation world and see if they can stay awake 36 hours out in the battlefield, the virtual battlefield and see what happens, and we can do measurements and make it safer for them. But those sensors also mean that we can make entertainment games that have drama. And so what you're going to do soon is we're going to have these sensors that, you know, will be able to give you stories that really hit your emotional heartstrings and make you sad and cry, and it's going to be completely awesome. And it will also help military simulation as well. We've got the world in simulation. The real world. But somehow, we forgot to put ourselves in. Somewhere in the next billion seconds, we'll be in that simulation too. And when we do, we'll see ourselves through new eyes and learn how to do it all better. Has this episode gotten you to thinking about the connections between simulation and entertainment? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website, leave us a message on LinkedIn, Tell us what you want to know. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. Big thanks to Andrew Hanawa, Mike Zaida, and Andreas Antoniades for coming onto our show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. 
If you like this episode, please hit subscribe. And if you think someone else would enjoy it, please share it with them. For more episodes, go to podcast1australia.com.au, download the Podcast One Australia app, or search the next billion seconds. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. Listening.